Deuteronomy 17. You must not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or sheep with a defect or any serious flaw, for that is detestable to the Lord your God. If a man or woman among you in one of your towns that the Lord your God will give you is discovered doing evil in the sight of the Lord your God and violating his covenant and has gone to worship other gods by bowing down to the sun, moon or all the stars in the sky, which I have forbidden, and if you are told or hear about it, you must investigate it thoroughly. If the report turns out to be true that this detestable thing has happened in Israel, you must bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and stone them to death. The one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. No one is to be executed on the, on the testimony of a single witness. The witness's hands are to be the first in putting him to death. And after that, the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from you. If a case is too difficult for you concerning bloodshed, lawsuits or assaults, cases disputed at your gates, you must go up to the place the Lord your God chooses. You are to go to the Levitical priests and to the judge who presides at that time. Ask and they will give you a verdict in the case. You must abide by the verdict they give you at the place the Lord chooses. Be careful to do exactly as they instruct you. You must abide by the instruction they give you and the verdict they announce to you. Do not turn to the right or the left from the decision they declare to you. The person who acts arrogantly, refusing to listen either to the priest who stands there serving the Lord your God or to the judge must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Then all the people will hear about it. Be afraid and no longer behave arrogantly. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers. You are not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him and he is to read from it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen, he will not turn from this command to the right or the left, and he and his sons will continue ruling many years over Israel. Let me pray. Well, Father God, we ask that you would help us now to understand your word and apply it to our life in Jesus' name. Amen. Do not judge. I've heard a whole number of people tell me uh, what they think that means, and they often misunder misunderstand that passage. Because on its own, it sounds like a godly thing to do. Do not judge. Except that's not what the verse says. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Then the next part. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. It's interesting because as you think about it, we judge all the time. As soon as you're a parent with just two children, you'll be called on to be a judge. 
a judge, a detective, and an executioner. A mum, Tommy pulled my hair. Dad, Hannah won't share. Annie is wearing my dress without asking again. And then, just wait till you become a parent of a teenager, of which some of you are. Then there'll come the, the day that they'll ask you for advice or ask you to explain something. It'll be, I got this text from a boy or a text from a girl. Uh, what should I do about it? Do I look good in this? Why can't I stay out later like Johnny does? And if you've got a tough one, uh, you may come up with one who becomes their own barrister and challenges your judgments. Uh, when you go to work, you've got that work, health and safety thing where every, boy, every worker has to assess everything that's going on around them to make sure that people are kept safe. Teachers, policemen, lawyers, bosses, even church leaders have to judge. And now with terrorism, you can be out on the street, nothing happening, and then there's someone who might be dangerous, someone who's not taking their medication. When you think about the Bible, we know that Solomon judged, Moses judged, uh, Peter judged Ananias and Sapphira, Peter and John judged Simon the sorcerer, Paul even tells the Corinthians, uh, their church, to judge. That's not what the passage is about. It's about not being a tough, merciless judge. Don't be judgmental. And so today, God teaches his Old Testament people about issues to do with judgment, Old Testament style. So if you follow with me, we'll go through it. Verse 2. If a man or a woman among you in one of your own one of your towns that the Lord your God will give you is discovered doing evil in the sight of the Lord your God and violating his covenant and has gone to worship other gods by bowing down to the sun, moon or all of the stars in the sky, which I've forbidden, and if you're told or hear about it, you must investigate it thoroughly. If the report turns out to be true that this detestable thing has happened in Israel, you must bring out to your gates the man or woman who has done this evil thing and stone them to death. So he asks every citizen of Israel to judge one another about idolatry. Almost every single chapter so far in Deuteronomy has had something to do with idolatry as we went through it. If you haven't got it yet, let me make it clear. Uh, Worshipping an idol, bad. Worshipping God, good. Very clear, and yet Israel's history is packed full of idolatry. God's people cannot be involved with false worship. There is one God and there is no other. That's what the Bible keeps teaching again and again. And if you see it being done, you get a witness, the both of you see the person doing the idolatry, you go off to the, the gates of the town and you tell the elders who sit at the front gates and do their judgments. They then are expected to go and look where that person was seen, check to see if there's an Asherah pole or an idol. They might come to the person's house and check it to see if there's other idols. They would then uh, interrogate the person who's being accused and then they would make a judgment. What is shocking for us is that if the person is found guilty, the witnesses are called to begin the execution. 
That is, if you were in Israel and you saw someone worshipping an idol and you went and dobbed on them and they worked out that, that in fact, that that person did uh, do that idolatry, you would have to throw the first stone. I'm sure you can understand why Israel failed. Could you imagine how hard it would be to pick up a, a rock the size of a skull and throw it at someone with the purpose of killing them? And then after you've started doing it, then everyone in the town was expected to throw stones, big stones, to kill someone. I'd find that really, really hard. And yet that is what God expected the Israelites to do, to do to people who worshipped other gods. The other shocking part for us is because we live in a secular, multicultural society. We have people around us, everywhere, tons of people, who are worshipping idols all the time. And we become so used to it, we don't see how offensive it is. We're surrounded by people who worship things, things other than God. They're people who worship money. I got a funeral on Wednesday, and I got told a story of this, this uh, son of the guy who died. The guy was only 56. Uh, his son uh, is not a very good kid. He's 20-something. He hasn't talked to his father in 10 years. Hates him. Once he was seen by his relatives, they were having some social gathering, and he pulled out a $20 note and he went, that is what life is all about. That's not good. The moment his father died... He was there to collect the $2 million from his father's estate. There are some people who worship money. Or they worship their family or their children, pursue sex or pleasure. Maybe they love their house so much that they, they live for it. It's all about turning their property into some sort of heaven on earth thing. Or maybe people live for holidays. Work can be an idol, although we're waking up to that. Material possessions. When you see idols and worship like this, you begin to realise that we are surrounded by idolatry. And we know that Israel fails. We hear so often how the, the whole countryside is full of these things called Asherah poles or, or Baal holy sites or the, the truly evil Molech burning sites where they would throw babies into it for worship. Obviously, the people refused to obey God because if they had have been, they would have been punishing and killing those who were doing these things. But Israel failed to judge and the idolatry spread like wildfire. And so all Israel was supposed to judge one another so that they would be a holy people. But then Moses moves from what is a normal practice down to really hard judgments, cases where the elders of, the, of each town couldn't work out what the truth was. So it says in verse 8, If a case is too difficult for you concerning bloodshed, lawsuits or assaults, cases disputed at your gates, you must go to the place that your Lord God chooses. You are to go to the Levitical priests and to the judge who presides at that time, ask, and they will give you a verdict to the case. So Moses is saying you are to go to the temple of God. If they haven't got the temple, so before Solomon's built it, it's a tabernacle, a nice big tent, 
And the Levites, the, the, the people who were born of the, the, the son called Levi, they actually don't have land to own. They, they work for God. And so they would be the priests who would help with the sacrifices and that. And so the, the situation is, is that the gate can't work out what the truth is. So you must come to where God rests. Wherever the ark is, either in the tabernacle or it's moved into the temple, you are to come to the temple and there will be a priest, probably a senior priest, uh, maybe the, uh, the high priest, a real professional in the law, and he will hear your case and then he will give you judgment. He'll pronounce what should happen. But I want you to notice that the passage does not focus on the judge, doesn't focus on the verdict, but the acceptance of the verdict. And there you are with an important case, but you cannot get the verdict that you like. So it's not cut and dry. It's not obvious who's right and wrong. So you decide to take it to the highest court in the land, which is where God is. At the very feet of God, or the God of all the universe, you ask for a judgment. One of the senior priests will take the case. He hears the evidence and then hands down the verdict. Here, here is a priest who represents God himself. Do you think you can reject the verdict? You know, to reject the priest's decision would be to reject God and his authority. And so that would make you a rebel, someone who just disregards whatever God says. And you know what happens to those who rebel against God? Verse 10. You must abide by the verdict that they give you at the place the Lord chooses. Be careful to do exactly as they instruct you. You must abide by the instruction they give you and the verdict they announce to you. Do not turn to the right or to the left from the decision they declare to you. The person who acts arrogantly, refusing to listen either to the priest who stands there serving the Lord your God or to the judge, must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Then all the people will hear about it, be afraid, and no longer behave arrogantly. If you come to God's house, stand in the shadow of God's throne, then you have to accept the verdict of God. And then, just to make sure you've got it all cleared, we get to the king. He'll have to make heaps of decisions and judgments. He's a man with tough judgments to make. Who can he trust? Which country should he be an ally to? Where should he send soldiers? Which towns need protecting? How much tax should he charge people? The king must make judgments all the time. You remember King Solomon makes a judgment about a baby where two mothers are claiming that the baby is theirs. Kings make judgments. Not even the king can escape God's rule. Verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers. You're not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. What's interesting about this, for those of you who know your Old Testament, is that God has already predicted that Israel will sin against him. 
Because you remember that there is a time where Joshua takes all of Israel and they invade the land. And then after that, there are all these judges. We might remember that from Kit came along and told us in the all-in that what judges were about. You get to the end of Judges and then you go into 1 Samuel and you realise Samuel will be the last judge. Because the people say, all right, we're sick of this. We're sick of waiting for a judge to turn up because we sin and, and you punish us with a foreign nation that gets at us. We instead want a king, just like all the nations around, them, around us have, and, and he'll have a standing army and he'll protect us. They've rejected God. And God's saying here in Deuteronomy, that's all before all of this, that when you get in the promised land and you decide that you want a king... This is how that king is expected to behave. He's already predicted that they're going to fail, they're going to reject God, and they're going to ask for a king. Except the king of Israel will be different to the kings around them. See, when a king of other nations comes to power, he is the ultimate power. He makes all the decisions and whatever he says goes. Except this passage makes clear that when Israel has a king... God will tell him what to do. That there will be rules for the king to follow. Verse 16. Yep. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Now, can anyone tell me which king has already broken all of those rules? I've got bad hearing in this ear, so it's harder. I should turn this way. Yeah, Solomon. He, he had these great kings. You've got Saul. Well, he's not a great king. Then David. And then Solomon. You love Solomon because he's all that wise stuff. He writes all the wisdom literature in your Old Testament. But King Solomon disobeys every command there. He does send people back to Egypt to not only get lots of horses, but also chariots. He has a harem of a thousand women. 700 of them are princesses, which means he's been talking to other countries and they, in order to get some good relationship, they give him a daughter or a princess so that he can marry to create an alliance. And he's got 700 princesses and 300 concubines. And so in 2 Chronicles 9, it then goes on to say that Solomon amassed so much silver in his reign that Jerusalem was so rich that silver was like a stone on the ground. It means if you were to go outside and pull in stones, and we're not talking just Australia, we're saying in a stony place like Jerusalem and Israel, you could pick up rocks and just see it everywhere. And, and in the Chronicle writer is saying that's how much silver was brought in to Jerusalem that a stone that is everywhere, you can find stones everywhere, that is how silver was. Silver was everywhere. And then over time, these foreign princesses actually do cause his heart to go astray and lead to idol worship. I'm not a very wise person in the end at all. And that's not how it was supposed to be. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write the copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll. That is, God has told him he has to write lines. 
He has to take this part and he's expected to write it out and just to make sure he does it in the presence of the Levitical priest. They will watch him as he writes it out. He'll write these massive lines and then he'll turn it into a scroll and he has to keep it with him. It is to remain with him and he's to read it from read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He'll not turn from this command to the right or to the left and he and his sons will continue ruling many years over Israel. What's interesting is that they only get three kings, Saul, David, Solomon, and then it all breaks up. They get this uh, large group that breaks away, the northern nations, and they call that Israel. And then the bottom part is Judah. In the northern kingdom, there are seven coups. Rarely does a lineage get far before it gets cut off and someone else takes the throne. Not that they listen to God so that God will pick the the king. They make their own kings again and again. And it's like, what's the dragon thing? The, the, The... I forget the illustration. Game of Thrones. Everybody's killing everybody to get to the king. Sorry, I left my notes. It's a chaotic mess. But the southern state does really well. It looks like there is just one line. There's a queen in there. That's generally not a good thing. But they have one line and it looks like some relative is always on the throne. They don't last long. But by the time they get to this king called Josiah, there's no scroll of the Lord that anybody's using. Josiah comes to the throne and he sees God's house and he he thinks it's pretty dreary and nobody's caring about it. And so he sends in the builders and the renovators to try and spruce it up a bit. And then suddenly a, a, a builder comes out and says, I found this scroll. So they run it off to the king and the, and the king's reading it. This little Josiah guy's reading it and he realises... God's told us how to live and we're not living it. That all the Levites, the king, nobody knows about this scroll that's sitting there that's telling them how they should live and that they have a covenant, a promise with God. And suddenly Josiah realises we've got to change. And so he calls the people to commit themselves to the scroll and he goes out and he wipes out the Asherah poles and the Bolex sites and the Baals and he actually comes across shrines, places of worship that Solomon built. So if you think Solomon's a good guy, you realise he's not. Solomon actually built idol worship spots that survived 300 years until Josiah finds them and then destroys them. So let me be clear as we finish this up. We're not going to go out now and stone anyone. Okay? Now you laugh, but I've watched stuff on the on the internet and what people write. And there are people who think we should be doing stuff like this. Or you've got to obey the Old Testament and you go, well, hang on. Does that mean we get to stone the idolatra? No, we're not supposed to do that because that was the Old Testament. That's not how we judge people anymore. We have two things that stop us now from doing what the Old Testament did. One, God has taken over the role of the executioner. The punishment for sin is now being held back by God. You you notice that God hasn't struck down anyone 
None, none of you have got a plague or got leprosy or, or the ground doesn't open up and you get swallowed or a pillar of fire just dumps on you and you're gone. God doesn't do that anymore because he's decided to hold over judgment. That means as we live our lives and we do the wrong thing, you would think we, could, we should get destroyed like they did. Why doesn't that happen anymore? Because God has chosen to hold over judgment until judgment day. And so while the world thinks that there, since there's no punishment like the Old Testament, then God doesn't exist. Except we know better. God is holding back judgment so that people have a chance to repent. To change their lives around before it's too late. So that the idea that we would harm anyone makes no sense. Even for ungodliness. Because it no longer applies to us. God has taken up the role of the executioner. But even more than that, the second one is, is that Jesus is the judge. He is the ultimate citizen. He's the one who goes around being the perfect citizen who never falls into idolatry. When tempted by Satan, Jesus refused to sin and bow down to him. He refused to be an idolater and worship Satan to get what he wanted. He's also the great high priest, a different priest to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was Levi, but Jesus is actually not a Levite priest, but a... Anyone want to tell me the, the name so I don't have to say it? A Melchizedekian priest. Right? There was a special guy who was dealing with Abraham, and he was a king and a priest, and his name was Melchizedek. And so the idea comes that Jesus is not like a Levite. He is a Melchizedekian priest, which means he is king and priest. That's what makes him so different. He doesn't, he's not a priest who cuts up meat and burns it and splashes blood on people. But he is the king who is the high priest who offers himself to be the sacrifice. And because he is perfect, he is the one who stands between us and God. He can stand in God's place and be the judge. He's the one who can sit on the throne and be the perfect judge. He stands as the only judge. And that's why John can call Jesus the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because there is no greater authority over Jesus except God the Father. Now, when we have to judge, we judge as sinners. We too know that we're not perfect, that we live in glass houses, and so we should be gentle when we judge. Because we could be wrong. We could make a mistake. We could have missed something. We've experienced mercy from Jesus, and so we should show mercy to those we judge. We take the fruits of the Spirit. I won't ask you if you know them. Let me, let me remind you of them. We judge with goodness and kindness, and patience, and love. There's joy, peace, and obviously, certainly if you are a parent, self-control. When we judge, we don't judge as someone above someone else. We judge as equals. We judge for the other person's benefit, not because we are special or because we're perfect, but because we make mistakes too. When Jesus judges, he judges with power. And he judges with complete knowledge. And he judges with God's authority. All of these things we don't have. 
You're not perfect. You do not have complete knowledge. And you do not have God's authority to judge. You have God's word and it teaches you to be gentle. We can get our judgments wrong, but Jesus won't. So when we judge, we judge carefully. We judge with mercy. And because we're not Jesus, God's perfect judge. Let me pray. Well, Father God, we ask that you would work in us, that we would be gentle judges. Just as the Lord Jesus was gentle and kind, we ask that you would help us. Lord, we look forward to the day that Jesus will come and make the final judgment of all people. We just ask that you would work in us and our friends, our families, to all the world, that many will put their trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.